Are you confused about real food and what's healthy and good for the planet? Do you need the facts about local, organic, and sustainable food? Well, get ready to change the way you eat. Get ready for The Appropriate Omnivore with Aaron Zober. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Appropriate Omnivore. I'm your host, Aaron Zober. This podcast is on making food from scratch. My blog is all about sustainable food. And what's the best way of truly knowing if something is sustainable? By being involved in every stage of making it yourself. And that's where today's guest comes in. Actor, producer, and adventurer David Moscow hosts the series From Scratch, which premiered a couple weeks ago on the FYI Network. On each episode, he literally makes his food from scratch. David doesn't just buy every ingredient to cook it, but he travels all over the world to hunt, gather, dive, forage, and grow the ingredients, and then cooks and prepares the meal. David, welcome to the program. Hey, it's great to be here. It's a pleasure to have you here. This is the appropriate omnivore, and I think you can't get any more appropriate than what you do. <laughs> it's kind of true. You got the name of my show before I was able to. Oh, well, sorry about that. <laughs> the show is a deep dive into, you know, the food we eat and our food system, how it's brought to our table. And it's been pretty eye-opening for me. I did not go into this an expert in any way. I was not particularly a good cook. I certainly like to eat good food, but I wasn't somebody who really took pictures of my meals. And, you know, I wasn't the ultimate foodie. Um, and I knew nothing about how to do things. You know, how do you harvest wheat? How do you turn it into flour? None of this stuff I knew. And I hadn't really, you know, gone out and picked an apple in 20 years or 30 years. So I was pretty distant from the food that I was eating, pretty removed before I started this project. And that was one of the reasons why I started the project was to get closer and to understand what it was I was in the end putting into my body and eating. I see some similarities with when I started my blog because I was not one either who took photos of all the food I made. In fact, I kind of call myself the accidental photographer because my background's always been more in writing and not really of the visual part. But then when you have a blog, you got to take photos. And now everyone says how I take such great photos. And for 30 years of my life, that was really never my thing was photography. And also I learned to cook a lot more. So obviously, as you've said, that's one of the reasons that you wanted to make this series. Were there some other reasons too that inspired you to make From Scratch? Yeah, I mean, there's multiple, um, sort of a bunch of things converged at the same time. I was about to have a kid and I started reminiscing about sort of my childhood and what I enjoyed the most. And uh, I think just hanging out in the woods and swimming in streams and fishing with my grandpa and picking berries and apples. I love that magical feeling of the east coast in the fall where you know it's crisp air and pumpkins and you go out and get cider and it's one of the few times you have the excuse to get out of the city and go upstate so i was thinking about all the things i want to do with my kid and realized that it had been a long time since i had done any of that stuff so that's one two there was a presidential candidate who was talking about building a wall which seemed just completely idiotic and evil uh being i live in california all of the neighbor across the border to the south. The Mexican culture is part of California's culture. And then my neighbors here, uh, the friends and family members who are of Central American descent, it felt like an attack on them, but also just kind of stupid, like an attack on ourselves. Because when you live in California, 
Mexican food is the food. I mean, when you live in the United States, Taco Bell is the number one restaurant in the United States. It's how ridiculous to suddenly say, oh, this isn't part of us. And so I wanted to do a documentary about, you know, food brings everybody together. That's something that is unquestionable. A good taco or burrito could, <laughs> could solve a lot of problems. One of my favorite restaurants here is Broken Spanish. Um, Ray Garcia is an amazing cook and he's got my favorite taco in this town is a pork chicharron taco. So that's what we were going to make. We are going to do a documentary about the making of pork chicharron taco and how to make a margarita. We were going to go to Mexico and, you know, work with subsistence farmers to harvest corn. And then, you know, I was going to go on a boar hunt for the pork, harvest agave. And then I raised money for it. And the question came, can anybody make their money back on this thing? And the agent I was working with at the time was like, well, you know, you could turn it into a TV series. And this could be the first investigation into like a food culture and then you can continue on. And that clicked. I was like, oh my goodness, that'd be really fun to think about how people are getting their food all around the world. So those are the two big things. The distance I had come from my childhood and interacting with getting food and then also the politics at the time when we were developing this, it just sort of called out for this thing. And then, then along the way, like early on, I realized another thing that was very interesting to me was how there are always these jobs that people agree with that people should make more money doing, like being a teacher or being a nurse. And that I really felt that about sort of farmers and fishermen, the people who bring our food to our table, even the restaurant workers, you know, I was involved in fighting for the minimum wage for them, demonstrating, you know, for that. And so that's something that also just comes up all the time. Here I am doing physical labor alongside these people and it is the hardest work <laughs> I've, I've ever had to do. And so when you think about like a billionaire saying, oh, I worked really hard to get this $60 billion. Well, you certainly didn't work harder than this dude who's harvesting agave in 95 degrees in the Mexican sun. Let's be realistic here, my friend. So anyway, so I want to promote that too. Like I feel like respect to the people who bring our food, who feed us is needed more respect and more pay. Yes, that last reason you bring up that's a very important one. It's along the lines of what this show is about, specifically farmers, because I know there's an issue with not a lot of young people wanting to go into farming. Hopefully your show can inspire more youth to become farmers. Well, it certainly shows the adventuring side of the intense work and the pleasure that you get out of intense work. There is something amazing about going out to outside, you know, in the fresh air, getting your blood flowing and building or harvesting. And then at the end of the day, that work you did turns into a pizza pie. There's nothing better than that. You know, that's it's pretty wonderful. You talked earlier about how doing this show, you'd also learned a lot to cook. So what are some of the major cooking lessons that you've gotten through doing this? Well, in general, what I've learned is that people tend to cook the same things and the same ways. Obviously, cooking over fire and then fermentation those are the two major ways everyone around the world is able to cook food. And so, you know, whether it's a barbecue, a braai in South Africa or a barbecue in the United States, they're kind of looking for the same end point. But everybody does it slightly culturally uh, their own way. So it was pretty neat. Like we went around, my crew was all South African and we did a couple episodes there. And so, you know, we were really talking about braai and what braai meant in South Africa and like cooking over fire, cooking meat over fire, and then eating with friends. And that's kind of what a barbecue is. And then we took them, they were talking up braai in South Africa, which is very good. 
Um, but then we took them down to Texas, you know, to hit the top uh, barbecue places in Texas, possibly in the world. And that blew their mind. <laughs> I, I think they got real quiet about Bry after that. They had some uh, incredible beef ribs down there. And then they had some brisket. I don't know if I ever said, so what do you think? But there was only talk about American barbecue after that. I mean, the intricacies of each dish is its own. Like the, these guys in Finland and Iceland did this thing where they used fish crackling. They de-skinned it and fried it up. And they used that to kind of like put over a um, another seafood dish. And wow, that is amazing. I imagine it's like, Gribbons, you know, using chicken skin and sandwiches and stuff like that. But I had never thought about using fish skin in that way. In Finland, he even fries up the scales. He like descales it, fries them up, and then it's almost like someone's adding popcorn to the top of your meal. And boom! I had never really gotten into the gastronomy where they like use nitrogen and stuff. I had never really eaten a lot of food like that. But the couple times that I came upon it and we had to make it over the series, that just does some such interesting things again in finland this chef yari blended up horseradish with a little milk or cream and then froze it into beads using nitrogen and then those little beads we put on top of another frozen fish dish and oh, bursts of like incredible hot flavor in your mouth just magic and i had never tasted anything like that so each place i kind of picked up something and in no way am i do I know what I'm doing in the kitchen? But I can comment on when other people are doing a good job. I'm like, oh, that looks like it's going to taste good, you know? Were there any big surprises you didn't expect from going on these journeys? Yeah, just in learning about stuff. There's so much stuff I didn't know. I went to this incredible orchard in Geneva, New York. It's a seed bank, and it's run with the government and Cornell University. And it houses the 2,000 most important apple trees, the types of apples historically. It goes all the way back to the first apples, which are from Kazakhstan, and they don't look like apples at all. They're little shrubby things with these green golf ball size, not even crab apple type thing that are sour and you wouldn't expect them to taste good. All the way through, you know, apples played an incredible part in U.S. history because they were a cheap source of sugar. They were the only source of sugar for a long period of time oh interesting it was before honey before we were really domesticating bees and sugar sugar was an exotic thing beet sugar didn't exist so apples were how people made sweet things and it was also you could turn it into alcohol so that was an easy way for people hard cider was a big thing in the 18 and 1900s and what i didn't realize this apple orchard it'll have the best hard apple cider apple from 1850 and then it'll have all of the top shelf item apples that we've had for the last 50 years right and so then what i discovered what the experts there told me was that apples are monogenetic meaning each seed is its own unique seed kind of like people right we don't clone ourselves when we have a baby and when a tree gives off an apple with a seed in it that seed is not the same as that tree that it came from. It can be wildly different. So in essence, there has only been one original red delicious tree, and then they have grafted branches from that onto new root systems to create more red delicious trees. I forget if this is the actual origin of red delicious, but this guy was walking by a river in Ohio. He noticed 
that these kids like to play under this tree a lot by the river. And so he went over and tasted the apple, was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. He bought the land. He put a cage around the tree, sent the apples to a contest. They were named something different. But when the contest, the part of it was that they would rename it. And they renamed it Red Delicious. That's how we're all the Red Delicious apples in the whole world come from. That one tree has been regrafted over and over again onto new root systems. And the same with Golden Delicious, the same with Macintosh, the same with all these apples. They just come from one origin, which blew my mind. Like I was like, oh my God, I would have thought that you get the seeds from a Golden Delicious tree and it'll grow into a Golden Delicious tree. I'm especially amazed at how apples were once a natural sweetener. That's... A big part of what I talk about on my blog and on this podcast is using natural sweeteners. I've talked about dates, date sugar, like you mentioned, honey, so many different kinds. And they keep trying to find new alternatives because stevie is kind of popular for a while and still is somewhat, but there's a lot of debate about whether stevie is good. A new one that I've seen is monk fruit extract. Do you think we could soon see some kind of apple extract as a natural sweetener in the market? I wonder. I feel like people are trying to go towards low calorie, which is why these sweeteners are there. And apples certainly have, you know, sugar in them, fructose in them. So it's not like stevia, which is like an alternative sweetener that is nothing like sugar, right? Right. So I'm not sure, but I highly recommend just cooking apple and using it to sweeten stuff, you know, like in your house. (laughs) Yeah, no, apples were hyper important. In fact, if you were traveling west and you wanted to buy land, if you were homesteading uh, in a lot of places, you had to have apple trees. They represented, the government wouldn't sell you the land if you did not have trees, apple trees in particular, because they, it showed that you could survive. So in a sense, apples represented real estate, which I didn't know either. You had to have 50 trees if you were going to get 10 acres from the government. It was almost like, in a way, like salt. Salt is another very interesting ingredient. We need salt to live, but our bodies don't make it. But thankfully, it's everywhere, particularly in the ocean. But salt was at a time one of the most important minerals in the world. It was so valuable. And it was because they used it to preserve meat, um, which allowed for boats. It allowed for boats to cross the oceans with fish in salt in the holds there. And so all of modern civilization was created from salt. And then the value of it collapsed. So it was one of the largest drop in value in human history. And now, you know, salt is very cheap. They don't need it because you know, of refrigeration now. So it's, that's where real collapse happened. But, and this is something I found out that's pretty, it was interesting to me, is that the value of salt mining now, when they look under the ground and they find salt pocket, it's very likely that there's oil inside those pockets because it's a representation of an old ocean, right? And so all this old ocean life, you know, has been captured inside this crust of salt, this ring of salt. So salt has value now, not in its own right, but because it can show you the way to oil, which I thought was pretty neat. And I've heard that because salt once was a way of preserving food before refrigeration, that we're actually not getting enough salt in our diets now. We used to have so much more in it. Oh, interesting. I've never heard that. Yeah, I imagine like people were dosing with salt all the time, and we definitely don't use it that way today. Of course, when it was used, it was sea salt and not this iodized salt. 
And that's where the whole debate comes in about how, well, salt's unhealthy for you. And yeah, if you are having the iodized salt, then it is a problem. But the true sea salt, the whole food, that actually has a lot of nutritional value in it. Oh, I can imagine, yeah. Well, that's what we made. We did sea salt in Iceland from the North Atlantic, and we evaporated it using geothermal power of the volcanoes of Iceland. Amazing, amazing salt. And the geothermal is amazing because I worked on a documentary years ago where we went to Iceland and talked about geothermal. So that's a very amazing process. And that is true sea salt because there is some confusion of sea salt versus earth salt. Those pink salts that you see, those are actually earth salts. They don't come from the sea. And there's different debate. I've heard some people actually say that the earth salts have some benefits to different ones than the sea salts. So I would say that... Either of them are better than your iodized salt that you find. Right. The chemically made salt, you know, or the mine. I know there are some old salt mines that they still use today. Yes. So now, was there anything that you thought you wouldn't like doing with all of these journeys that you ended up actually loving? (laughs) Well, just in the making of the show, we drove for hours. And so um, I was like, oh, this is going to be brutal. You know, an eight-hour car ride to the far reaches of wherever but i learned to sleep in the car <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then car rides became magic i couldn't wait to get in the back of the seat of the car and lay down <laughs> and then i would wake up and we'd be in some place new but in terms of things that i didn't like well you know i ended up having to do some diving some scuba diving and i had tried it when i was younger i have problems pressurizing my ears and so it's always been very frustrating to me because I couldn't get down past a certain level because it would blow my ears out. So, And something happened. I figured out how to do it. I, I went in the Philippines. I went and took another lesson and managed to slowly get myself down deep. And then when we went diving in Iceland in the fjords, we were diving for scallops and urchin. And that was like, you know, the Philippines is beautiful, warm water pretty fishes, coral reef. I had a little trepidation going into the fjord, which is like dark and cold, but I was able to do it and not hurt my ears and then felt a relaxation down there that I had never felt before because I had always been so nervous about what was going on with my ears. So like I was able to appreciate even what was there, which was incredible. There was so much life on the fjord floor um, and you could see like Seals were getting out. We were competing with our harvesting with all the different sea animals of the ocean. And it was pretty magic going down along the bottom in a dry suit in this frozen, you know, in this really, really cold fjord with a flashlight and harvesting, just picking up mollusks and putting them in my bag. Like, wow, what a way to harvest. Additionally, going along with this, were there any foods that you didn't like and you specifically said, Let's make an effort to make these foods. <laughs> no, I leave the recipes really for the chef. So they come at me with three or four, and then I, I say, oh, well, we've already harvested pork, so we're not going to do this pork chop. But really, it's up to them. When you're traveling around the world, there are different foods in certain cultures that I look at, and I'm like, oh, my God, I, I really don't want to eat that. But we sort of had this running agreement, me and the crew, If there was something that they wanted me to try, they wanted me to eat, they had to eat it too. So so they they were going to tell me to eat it. They had to make sure they were going to eat it as well. 
So we ate sheep's eye in South Africa. I ate bullet in the Philippines, which is fermented duck embryo. I had a lot of raw stuff in Iceland and Finland, raw fish, raw clams. I like sushi, but I like the basics. I like spicy tuna or a salmon sashimi, but I'd never gotten into the uni or any of the raw scallops or clams or shrimp. And so we did that. We pulled stuff out of the water, sat on the shore and ate that stuff. So that, and I appreciated it and I liked it. It's opened me up now. I went and had omasaki in new york and ate pretty much everything i'm not an eel fan but that's just the taste it has nothing to do with not liking what i was eating meaning like sometimes in your mind you're like oh this is disgusting in this case eel i just don't like the taste but the omasaki like i had a or omakasi what is it omakasi sorry we did have sake too <laughs> it was omasaki <laughs> and omakasi so the omakasi i ate pretty much everything which i would never have done before like i would never have let a chef just send me out what they wanted at a sushi restaurant, I would have been like, very, no, I don't eat this. That was an evolution, and I learned to like stuff while there. I also think that, like, going back to something I think all people should do, this is why I was doing the show, there's something so magical about going and getting your own food and eating it. It made me want to eat the sushi. It made me want to sit on the side of the shore and taste what I had just harvested. The fact that I did it and that I was putting it into my mouth. In some sense, my kid had a similar experience. My son was, I don't know, a little over a year and he came to Finland. My wife and he came to visit me on that part of the journey. And I was shooting in this forest. We were picking wild mushrooms. It was time for me to go back and shoot again. So we plopped him down in a patch of wild strawberry and he couldn't walk. He could crawl, I think, but he couldn't walk. And he sat there while I was off shooting, like, you know, over there, he sat in this patch and it blew his mind that he could take this strawberry off of the plant, put it in his mouth himself, and that it tasted incredible. And he sat there chilling and just eating strawberries. And one of his first words was strawberry after this. And today, his favorite fruit is strawberry. And I think that's because a pathway was made in his brain that by doing this himself, by feeding himself and it tasting wonderful, it etched itself in his mind. I think that's wonderful that you're able to take your kid along on these journeys because you see so much and that he's able to join you. You talk at the beginning about how before doing this, you weren't into cooking at all. Now that you've done this show at home, do you find yourself cooking more and actually being able to do more of this stuff yourself? I wish it could be more. Creating a television show is insanely hard and it is a lot of work. And I have a tendency, what's sad is that the Really, I'm back into the modern lifestyle that I was trying to sort of get away from, where I work really, really, really hard, and I order food to the house, I eat, and keep working. Um, and my wife also has a very stressful job, so the weekends are really the days that we cook. And we do cook for Harrison, we do cook for our kids. And he eats homemade food there at our house, at our table with us. But us all cooking together really just happens on the weekends or when I'm traveling around the world <laughs> doing this show. <laughs> but that was also a weird juxtaposition. There were particular meals that were obviously like from scratch, homemade, working with the chef and then getting to eat it. But those are rare. Those are only like two per week, right? Because I get the one that the chefs makes at the beginning and the one that I make at the end. Um, and in between, I'm in a van driving and we're pulling over to like restaurants on the side of the road which it's the worst food you could get. So that was actually really hard 
maintaining good eating habits, especially if I was going to be on camera, I started gaining weight. The first three episodes, I'd never done this before. And I was eating constantly, like whether cooking and eating or eating in the car or then when I'm out there harvesting stuff, I'm always trying it while I'm out there. I started gaining weight like crazy sitting in the car, not working out. After three episodes, I really had to like reset my thinking about like, okay, I can't be in a car all day snacking on stuff that we're getting in these convenience stores on the side of the road, whether we were in the Philippines or in Finland or wherever. So I had to really rethink what I was eating and how I was eating. And then in Texas, the Texas episode is a little different. Most episodes, what I do is I go to a chef, they give me a meal, a dish, and then I hunt, gather, harvest, fish, every ingredient that could be in that. And then we come back and make it. And in Texas, it became more about the ingredients. It was beef. So in Texas, I went down and I slaughtered a cow. That was one of the most intense experiences. It was terrible. It was a really sad, emotional experience for me, which changed how I interact with meat. I eat a lot less of it now. I try and eat vegan five or six days a week. If not, the sixth day could be vegetarian. And then I have one day where I eat animal products. And I try. I'm not perfect at this, especially when you're driving around <laughs> Texas <laughs> and there's nothing but meat. You can get anything you want as long as it's barbecued and meat, right? <laughs> so that was tough. But since then, in L.A., it's a lot easier to try and do that. You know? So that change has stuck with me. Sadly, I get most of it postmated to me these days. But. I think that's something we can all relate to of finding the time to cook when we live such a busy schedule. In fact, I did a podcast on that several months back last year where we talked about the whole topic. And I think for anyone interested in that, they should go back and listen to the one with Ellen Jaworski. She talks about that because she does a lot of classes and seminars on that. And it's something even myself, I struggle too even with doing this show. Especially if it's a night where I'm editing one of these episodes, I find it hard to take the time to cook a full meal. So even I still struggle with that too, especially since being a single guy and going out. But like you said, I try to find some nights where I can do it. And I like that you brought up the issue of killing the animal yourself because that is something that I get from a lot of vegans and vegetarians is that I eat this meat that I don't kill myself. And so it leads me to a question about that and about in general, do you think that all people should try doing this stuff at least once, whether it's hunting the animals themselves or doing the gathering harvesting, the fishing, the diving, the foraging, the growing? Oh, yeah. I mean, just in a sense, for your own personal sort of health and well-being, yes. And then for the state of the world, the state of the environment, you know, and the life of the animals themselves, I also think it's important that people cannot hide behind the distance that we have. Everyone gets their meat wrapped in plastic or wrapped in paper from Burger King or on a plate at a restaurant and it has nothing to do with the animal that it was once before the day you get up close and have to kill or butcher an animal that was once just alive it's a heartbreaking thing and you have to like take that in and number one it'd be hypocritical a lot of people like to say oh oh i couldn't do that i can only eat it right but that is hypocrisy and that's the hypocrisy that is doing a lot of damage to this planet if we keep our eyes averted or our head in the sand, then we can do a lot of stuff. It's not good. But I think that coming up face to face, sticking our nose in it, in essence, you'll be able to make a real decision about whether or not eating meat is good for you, whether you're okay with eating meat. 
So like I get it and I've done it a couple times now because I've had to hunt, you know, I hunted and also slaughtered the cow in a processing center. What has made sense to me is that, look, I love beef. I'm going to continue to eat it. But the problems I have with it are the conditions, the cruelty in which animals are treated now. That wasn't the way it was. You know, we've always eaten meat, but we never kept animals this way. It used to be that the animal's worst day was the day that we killed them. And now they live in such terrible conditions that that's a question. And then also, we used to think that animals were sort of like there for us to consume they had no emotions. They had no intelligence. And now we know that that's not true. We know that pigs are smarter than dogs and octopus are as smart as pigs. Some dolphins are even smarter than us or have a bigger imagination than us. And so that has changed our idea about sort of the sentience of these animals. And so if I'm going to do it, I've got to do it rarely. I'm going to do it rarely. It's going to be a special day and I'm going to pay a lot of money for it so that the animal is raised humanely, treated correctly before it's killed. So it goes back to being the worst day of the animal's life is the day it dies, not all the days before. And so that is kind of how I'm going around now. If I do eat beef, it's grass-fed, raised humanely, small farms, small processing centers where they're not like just shipping in a thousand cows and stunning them on hooks and slitting their throats in a row. Right. So that's what changed for me. And I think that people should do this. We're only two generations away from that being the norm. My grandfather, meat was not at the center of every meal. It was a condiment or a very special occasion because they didn't have the money. Right. And the government hadn't started subsidizing cattle at that point or chickens or whatever. So most of their food was vegetable, which was much, much healthier as well. Like, not only is it bad for the animal, but it's bad for us. Like 80% of our plate should be green, green plant. And then you have a little bit of protein and you have a little bit of starch. And that's what's healthy for us and for the planet. So people should get in there, go hunting. And then you have to gut it. You got to skin it. You got to take it all the way down. I mean, that was the hardest part. Killing the cow was certainly rough, but then breaking it down, right? Because... It takes a while in the butchering process to get to the point where you're like, oh, okay, this doesn't feel like an animal anymore. It feels like the meat that I know that I see in the butcher shop or hanging, right? They stun the cow, you slit the jugular vein, it drains out 100 gallons into a big bucket, and then they drop it down, and you start cutting off the hooves, the head, you gut it, open it up, you de-skin it, you know, and then you're starting to get to the place, and meanwhile, the legs, the muscles are still firing. It's still moving around. Like you got to watch out. It's not going to kick you. Like, and that whole few hours of time is terrible. You're just like, oh, I want to get out of here. This is horrible. Why did I do this? But you have to walk down that path or else you're living as a hypocrite, which I don't like personally. I don't want to live that way. So, yeah, it's an eye-opening experience. And I do know a number of people that have actually done this as far as hunting their animals at least once or a few times in their life and other things too. A lot more people are growing food themselves. And of course, they were able to make this into a series. Plus, I've heard the term from scratch for a while now. So do you feel too like a lot more people are doing this and that is what helped you be able to sell this show? I think that there's actually two directly oppositional things that are happening. One is that a few people who can afford it or who have the time or really are investing in the DIY world, they are doing this, right? 
but the vast majority is heading super fast in the other direction. I think fast food and now these food delivery services are making the vast majority of people even further away from the food that they eat. And I think a couple of years ago, there were more people living in cities than in the countryside. And that was for the first time in the United States. So once people are moved into the cities, there's less gardening, less going out into the woods. And so you have a very loud subsect that can afford this and really putting the effort in. I think most of it is about economics. And then everybody else is either trying to survive, and so they get the cheapest meals that they possibly can, which is, you know, go to fast food, or they don't have the time because their lives are all the modern stuff in the world is replacing this really human need. And I hope that this show will get some people out to pick some wild strawberries. I mean, that's the hope, right? What it could also be doing is allowing people to sit back on their couch and watch the food adventure porn. And that would be sad if that was all that occurred. That would be, yeah, that's the wrong message. (laughs) But I think like, look, I watched some shows, you know, obviously Bourdain, even Guy Fieri, even Diners Drive-In Dives. It makes me want to get out. It makes me want to go try these things. So when it's done correctly, I think it could be the spark. I hope it's the spark that would get people out there and foraging themselves. Just a couple times. Just go get a mushroom book. Well, with mushrooms, go find a mushroom guy. <laughs> you don't want to poison yourself. Yes. <laughs> Everything. You can Google some kind of wild foraging class and do it one weekend with your kids or single. It's just so fun. It's an adventure. It's a gift to yourself. And it's a lot simpler. It's just you and your hands, sneakers or boots and go out and do this with a group of people. Come back and eat whatever it is that you did. I mean, especially living in California, there's so much food being made here. You know, you can go harvest any kind of fruit in the spring and summer. You can go harvest gourds, pumpkin, everything in the fall. There are all kinds of trees with nuts on them. I think there's even a couple of websites for urban foraging where they have like a map that says, oh, you know, on this street, there's an overhanging orange tree. Go and get some of the fruit. And that's kind of neat, too. We wanted to do a whole episode on edible city food and we were thinking about doing it in singapore because singapore is like the ultimate modern city i don't think legally you are allowed to sell anything that is harvested in the city limits in a restaurant you cannot do any restaurant food from within the boundaries of singapore it's a law so we obviously wouldn't be serving this to anybody else but we could forage ourselves so we thought that how neat would that be singapore is a place where they basically outlawed from scratch, but is it possible? So that's something that we've been talking about doing. I think that would be great because it is important to talk about stuff to do when you are in the city, especially for somebody like me, because even though I do love eating wild farming and all of that, I also do love living in the city. I think, though, we are moving in the right direction when we have things such as a rooftop garden. I think that's a good sign of people in the city wanting to have more connection with where their food is coming from. Yeah, I mean, look, you have the plants growing up through the cracks in the sidewalk. And that's what a roof garden is. You know, you got the city, the modernity, the stone, the steel, the glass of a city. And then you have these green spaces. What's nice is that I think when people start talking about this, it really touches a place in all of us. 
that we are missing. So that's the hope. There's a glimmer of hope. And as Woody Allen says, hope is happiness. Love that. And you were talking about how you'd like to do an episode reaching out to people in the city about things they can do. What are some other topics which you weren't able to cover in the first season and you'd like to cover in future ones? Well, we've already started. We've got four or five episodes planned out for a possible season two, if the season two occurs. And I think we're going to do a French episode. And it's a classic. And by classic, I mean like a meal that was started in the 1500s for the king. And no one had made it recently until a group of the gastronomy chefs brought it back a couple of years ago. And now they have a contest once a year for who makes the best version of this dish. And so the chef that we're talking to is at a restaurant called Les Amis Jean in the 11th in Paris, and he would like us to enter the competition with the dish. It's almost like a French version of a turducken. Um, it has pork cheek and rabbit, and it has foie So that's a complicated issue. But there's a guy in Spain, there are a few people, but, but a guy in Spain in particular who we're talking to who makes foie humanely. Yes, I'm a big fan of him. Very familiar with it as I love foie gras. So we're going to go do that, I think. We're going down to Peru, Peru which I had no clue, is probably the most important food country in the world right now. It has two of the top 10 restaurants in the world and three of the top 50 restaurants, maybe not country, city. There are three of the top 50 restaurants in Lima. And so we're going to go down to Lima and do one of these. And I want to try something where a lot of the top restaurants there are tasting menus. So we'll do like a little dish from the Andes and then a little dish from the Amazon and a little dish from the coast. So that'll be, a, I imagine, a mind-blowing journey. And along the way, with food, we're always exploring the topics of economics. We're always exploring the topics of the environment. The people who are harvesting and fishing for our food are at the front lines of the climate change war that's going on. They're the first ones that get hit. Any droughts that come through, you know, the overfishing or when fish move because of warming waters, they take the hit and it destabilizes villages and cities and countries. There are 4 million Filipinos who make their living on the water and the fish are almost gone in the South China Sea because of big trawlers, Chinese, U.S., Canadian trawlers that go through. And these smaller fishing villages get wiped out economically. So then they impoverished people move to the cities or the young people all move to the cities, destabilizing the cities. And you're seeing the real impact of global warming through our food. But all these things you bump up against every time we go someplace. In the Philippines, it wasn't, I didn't know this before I went there, but then you start talking to people, these fishermen, and they're literally saying like, I get, my father got 10 times the fish that I get, and his father got 10 times the fish that he got. And I go out longer and further and bring back less. And so you're hearing it from the people on the ground, and it affects our show. Like, I went fishing to make fish sauce in the South China Sea, and we did not catch anything. I went to get octopus in Sardinia, which used to be a trash fish, right? No one cared about octopus, and we couldn't get him because the Mediterranean in particular is under a lot of stress because there are, I think, 28 countries, or maybe it's 49, I forget. It's either 28 or 49 countries that sit on the Mediterranean and they're just hammering that thing for fish all the time. And there's no sort of like rules. Every country's just out there trying to get what's there. And it's emptying out the Mediterranean, which is insane. Because when you think about the Amalfi Coast or Greece, you think about sitting at a, you know, an open air restaurant on the ocean with some grilled fish, that may be gone in the next few years. We call this the medicine and the ice cream. There are very deep 
problems that we're talking about while the ice cream, the adventure is going on. And I hope that people stick around to hear the stuff that's harder to take. I hope so too. Lots of stuff to look forward to in your program. We're just about out of time, but before we go, tell the listeners where they can find your series from scratch. It's on FYI, 6 p.m. on Sundays. Check it out. Every Sunday night, new episode of From Scratch airs Sunday, 6 p.m., 5 p.m. Central Time with today's guest, David Moscow. So, David, thank you so much for coming on the program. A lot that I've learned today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. That's all for this episode of The Appropriate Omnivore. Stay tuned for my next episode. To make sure you never miss any of my podcasts, go to iTunes and subscribe to The Appropriate Omnivore. You can also listen to all of my podcasts at the website appropriateomnivore.com. There you can find recipes from the guests I interview, plus all of my articles covering lifestyles in the world of real food. Until my next podcast, my pantry is officially closed.